0: All right, good morning, guys. Oh, man. Let's try that again. Good morning, guys. That's better. Uh, Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and uh, I'm the lead pastor. We're going to be continuing in the book of James this morning, so let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and flip over to James. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, I think we're going over to page 1012. If not, it's right near there. We are heading over to James chapter 4, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10. Today we get to look at the central passage in the book of James. Um, we talked about how James is kind of a cyclical letter. He, he cycles through themes very much like wisdom literature does. He doesn't just work linear, linearly through a series of ideas. He kind of cycles through. But right here in the heart of the letter, this, this is the, the center of the storm. This is the, the central thrust. And, and in today's passage, James switches from sage to profit, right? What we see is that he moves from, from um, writing wisdom literature to giving us a prophetic rebuke and calling us to lamentation. Um, this is a heavy passage. Uh, it, it has a, a very strong tone, um, but what we need to realize is that James is being a faithful friend in this passage. Um, Proverbs tells us, faithful of the wounds of an enemy, deceitful of the kisses, or faithful of the wounds of a friend, deceitful of the kisses of an enemy. Uh, James is being a good friend. Um, he is calling out our shame to turn us to grace. He is calling us to, to wake up and see what is real so that we can enter into what is truly life. And so let's take a look at our passage this morning and, uh, and then we'll unpack it. We're looking at James chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 4 and And read through verse 10, starting in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word of the Lord. All right, so that's a fairly intense, sorry, <laughs> man, man. Yeah, thanks be to God, yes, yes. All right, that's a pretty intense, intense passage, right? You're not likely to find those verses on your Hallmark gift cards or on that mug, you know, turn your laughter to mourning, weep and howl and wail, you miserable wretches, right? That, that typically is not what's going to be hung in the dining room over the dining room table as a feel-good verse, um, but these verses are critical, Um, the role of a prophet, right? There's a biblical role of a prophet, and and the prophet's job is to force us to see what we don't want to see, to call us to admit what we don't want to admit, to to in some cases stick our nose in what we're trying to just absolutely insist doesn't exist, so that we will smell it and we will see it and, and we will turn from it. He is calling us out to sober us up we are we are drunk on our worldliness all right we are drunk on our worldliness and like the drunk guy in the corner who is completely unaware of just how stupid he's become and how dangerous he is to himself and to others we have become drunk on our worldliness and in our spiritual stupor we are dangerous to ourselves and we are dangerous to others and james is is throwing a, a dash of cold water in our faces to call us back to reality it's interesting that he starts out, the very first, the way he opens up, hey, you adulterous people. Um, that's nice, right? Every, every other time previously in the letter he's been speaking to us, he has said, hey, brothers, and, and, and the Greek is adelphoi, but, which means brothers, but, but it is a generic term. that means, hey, family, right? Hey, family, hey, hey brothers and sisters, hey, it is inclusive. Hey, fam, this is important, right? But this isn't hey, fam. This is, this is hey, you adulterous people, hey, hey, you harlots, hey, you cheaters. Um, the Old Testament uh, uses this idea a lot when it's describing how the people of God stray from God to, false, to worship false gods, right? And so when, if you look in the ESV, you'll find this phrase that, that God's people played the harlot, right? If you, if you look up that phrase, you're gonna find it throughout the Old Testament. I, I actually prefer the King James Version um, in this case. It, it says, God's people went a-whoring. Um, because God's people go a-whoring. They, they, just, they just whore themselves out to false gods. And, and, and in what he's saying here is, is he's setting the stage. He's saying, you Christian, you, you follower of Christ, you're in a covenant relationship with your God. When, when you believed in Christ, when you claimed the benefits of grace, you moved into a covenant relationship With God. And in a covenant relationship, there is an expectation of fidelity. That that there will be a mutual commitment of love and exclusivity. That we are, that we have as God's people, broken. We are violating our covenant relationship with God in our friendship with the world. Verse 4 says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The implied here is that in our drunken stupor, we, we really think we can, we can have an exclusive covenant relationship with God and, you know, have friends with benefits, you know, basically have friendship with the world. We can, we can get the benefits of God without obligation to God. We can get the benefits of grace, but we can get them according to the means of this world. We we can have friendship with the world and still receive the benefits. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In your spiritual stupor, in your spiritual fog, you don't, you're not seeing right. You're not seeing right. Worldliness, let's again define this because... Um, uh, it, is, it is a word that has been so horribly uh, defined by broader Christian culture. Typically, worldliness, people think of the bad things out there, the, the, the corrupting influences of our culture. We think of, of alcohol and movies and entertainment and, and, and strip clubs and, and all the bad things out there that are manifestations of worldliness, but biblically, worldliness isn't primarily a problem out there. It is primarily a problem in here. It, it is the inclination of my heart to try to get the blessings of God on my terms. It is trying to get the fullness of God without the relational weight of submitting to God. It is trying to get the blessings of the kingdom of God while I am living according to the principles of the kingdom of man. It is my determination to live out the rebellion of Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, mankind looked at God and said, we will be like God. We're not going to be humbly dependent on God. We're not going to submit to God. We're going to give life on our terms, setting the boundaries of our blessing and achieving them in our strength. We will be like God. We will establish our own glory. We We will create our own security. We will use all the things you've given to us to reach the fullness of life without the God who gives it. That's worldliness. And it's in all of us. And as I was writing this sermon, honestly, this, is, this has been um, a very difficult passage to wrestle with, because I see this worldliness at work in my heart every day. Um, when, when I find myself wanting to run to escape or indulgence, instead of running to the God who gives rest, that's worldliness when I want to find rest for my soul, but I don't run to the God who gives it. I think I can get it on my own. I can get it on my own terms and my own ways. When, when, when I try to, to find my significance in my achievement, I am worthwhile because I am secure because when, when I look to the applause of men or, or the praise of people, when I look to the, the, the accomplishments to quietly say to my soul, "This is why you're worthwhile." Or when I feel the threat to those accomplishments, and I feel like now I'll be exposed for the genuine failure that I am—that's worldliness. I don't run to the God who gives significance and security. I run to the accomplishments of my own hand. I want to establish my own glory. I don't want to rest in the glory been given to me in Christ. I look to my own ability to find security. I fight to control all the loose ends of my life, and I can't, and, and, and I rage at God because I'm not God. That's been my week. How's your week been? Um, so this is personal, you guys. This is personal. When we're talking about worldliness. We're talking about the impulse of our heart to walk in this rebellion against God, and and we will even hijack our religious behavior to accomplish our worldliness. We will take pride in our religious performance. We will take security in in, in our morality. We We will take the very things of God and try to use them against God as leverage to become independent from God. We are sick in our worldliness. It is deeply personal, but here's the thing. It's also systemic because... We never operate independently or isolated from others. We get together with others who have a similar sickness, and we create systems together, right? We tend to gravitate toward those that are worldly in the same way we're worldly. People who take pride in the same things we take pride in and are offended by the same things we're offended by, and and together we create systems where we magnify our pride and condemn other people's shame. We find others who have similar false gods, and we hang out with them. And we create systems of life with them. So I want to take a minute and talk about these systems. I'm going to try to be an equal opportunity offender this morning. We'll see. Um, here's the thing. I, I, think, I think this is the greatest problem we're facing in America today. The greatest problem we're facing in America today are not the Politicians. They're not the political forces. They are not not the legislative battlegrounds. The greatest problem facing America today is that the church is worldly. And in our worldliness we trample the gospel of grace. And instead of being salt and light, salt that preserves, light that brings, brings illumination to places of darkness, we magnify the Worldly Christianity at war with worldly Christianity and the gospel of grace is the casualty. Christians have rallied around their false gods instead of the gospel of grace. Now, here's the thing that happens on both the conservative and the progressive side. Both have gone a whoring after their favorite false gods. All right, here we go. This is the fun part. Progressives. If you find yourself on that side of the spectrum, you just need to know I'm speaking in generalities now. When I speak of generalities, I realize I'm speaking to a spectrum and not all the things I'm going to say are true of everyone who considers themselves a, a, a progressive Christian or a conservative Christian. I'm speaking in generalities, but these are general observations that I have gained from hours of sitting across the coffee table from people trying to help them sort out the mess of their lives as I've looked at their social media feed and I have looked at what's going on in culture around us. Progressives have tried to worship God at the altars of personal happiness and relativistic values. They try to worship both the God of Scripture and the God of self. There is an assumption that my happiness is the greatest good, and therefore whatever gets me there is holy. If my happiness is the ultimate good, then whatever gets me there is holy. I want the benefits of grace, but I want the benefits of grace without the exclusive commitments of love. I want the benefits of being loved without the exclusive demands of love. I want to be loved, and I want grace, but don't tell me how to live. We love God. As father, we love God as creator. We love God as justice, the one who will come in and set right all the things that are wrong in this world, but we don't love God so much as Lord. As progressives, we have trouble with Jesus' words. If we like the part, you are forgiven, it's the next part, go and sin no more. We struggle with that. Personal accountability, moral obligation, they don't fit well with a relativistic view of the world in which all things are relative. If, if it makes you happy, how can it be bad? If it, if it makes you feel full and alive and good, how can it be bad? And what ends up happening is, is we as progressives become double-minded people. James has called that out, double-minded people, double-souled people trying to live in two realms by two sets of values that, that are like oil and water, and they don't mix, and it makes us unstable in all of our ways. Listen to me, if I can't trust God's authority, I can't trust God's love. You cannot trust God's love and not trust his authority. It will tear you apart as you try to enter into the benefits of grace while you're resisting the claims of his authority and lordship over your life. I can't thrive in God's grace and refuse to submit to God's plan. I just can't. It makes me a double souled man, unstable in all my ways. Conservatives are like, yeah, that's right, man. Go get him. Go get them. Well, careful because you're next. Uh, conservatives, we aren't any better. Conservatives try to worship God at the altar of political power and financial greed. We want the gospel of grace and we want the gospel of power. I want the power of the kingdom to come and I want to get it through the power of the kingdom that is. I want the benefits of God's kingdom, but I want the power of this kingdom. Conservatives have trouble with Jesus' con- conversation with the rich man. We like the part where it's like, <laughs> hey, rich man, I like you. It's the part where he says, go and sell everything you have and follow me. When he says to the rich man, not just give up your money, but give up your power. Give up your influence. Give up, give up. all that stuff that you think makes you important. All that stuff that you think is actually going to help you achieve good things in this. That's not the power of the kingdom. Give it all up and follow me. conservatives have trouble with that idea of radical personal sacrifice. I've worked for this. I earned this. This is mine. This is my kingdom. I've accomplished these things. And when God asks us to voluntarily walk away from the benefits of our own labor, it feels like betrayal of our own values, the laying down of my power. Well, they misuse the power. If I lay it down, they misuse it. As if you don't. As a conservative, I want influence and I want comfort. And I want things in this country to go back to when I was comfortable. The good old days, when I wasn't continually challenged and offended. When I could just love God and love my country without continually being challenged. Challenged. What could be more right than God and country, right? God and country. It's like baseball and apple pie. It's all American. It's wholesome. It's good. Is it? I saw a post on social media. It started with this phrase, as for me and my house, we will. And and if you've been around Christian subculture for any amount of time, that phrase is probably very familiar to you. It is the beginning of Joshua 24, 15 in which Joshua is speaking to God's people. It's after they've entered and conquered the promised land, and, and, and some of the Jewish people, some of God's people, were tempted to go serve Molech or go see, serve, serve false gods. And, and he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it was a clear call to God's people to separate themselves from, from the, the worldly influences, the temptation to combine worship of God with the false worship of this world. That's that's a hallmark verse right there. That's a verse some of you may have hanging in your house. It's a beautiful verse, right? Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, this is what the meme said. I'm going to throw it up there. As for me and my house, we will salute the flag, stand for the national anthem, kneel before the cross, and serve the Lord. And some of you are like, that's straight shooting right there. What's wrong with that? This is a perfect example of what i'm talking about this is you guys this is a weird fusion of patriotism and pietism of politics and and religious devotion right we're, we're we're taking our patriotism our devotion to country and putting it on the same plane as our devotion to god like we think it's cute to take the word of god a call to exclusive devotion to god and to pervert it by inserting our devotion to country? And it's not just patriotism, let's just be honest. The the patriotism that's being espoused in this meme is a very specific kind of patriotism. It's my view of patriotism, right? Because there are people out there who think the truest form of patriotism is actually protest. We have a country founded on protest. And and often, America's truest light shone brightest when Americans stood with the minority in protest against the majority, calling America to her truer and better self. But this, this meme doesn't allow for nuance or conversation. My view of patriotism is on par with my devotion to God, for God and country, for God and country. What could be wrong with that? So, interestingly enough, Joshua, when he was getting ready to go into the promised land, in in the early chapters of Joshua, he is walking along the bank of the Jordan, looking across to the promised land, and they're getting ready to enter, and as he's walking along and preparing himself and his people for battle, he runs across a guy he's never seen before, and this guy is dressed up in full battle garb, and Joshua pulls his sword and walks up to him and says, are you for us, or are you for our enemies? And the guy's response is short and clear. No. No. I am not for you. And I am not for your enemies. I am the captain of the Lord of hosts. No. It's not a question of whether I'm with you. The question is whether you're with me. Now, we don't know who this guy was. Scripture doesn't tell us. I, I Theologians would, would posit different things. I personally think this was a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. God, God the, the Son, appearing before his incarnation as a human. Uh, he, he does that occasionally in, in the Old Testament. I think he appears at this point in front of this epic battle and, and realigns Joshua's thinking. You guys, he's basically saying it's not a question of whether I'm for you. The question is, are you exclusively devoted to me? This is the, 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 the captain of the army of the Lord looking at Joshua and saying, don't ask me if I'm with you. Because the only question that's relevant is, are you with me? Are you exclusively and solely devoted to me? Listen to me. If Joshua couldn't say, for God and country... Without offending the captain of the Lord of hosts. What makes us think we can? If Joshua, who led Israel, God's chosen covenant people, could not say, I have devotion to both God and country as if they were equal. Without violating his fidelity to God. Without, in fact, putting his life in danger in front of the Lord of the Captain the captain uh, of the, the army of the hosts of heaven, if he couldn't, what makes us think we're cute when, when we do, that that's somehow wholesome and healthy and good? Anytime we try to worship God at the altar of politics and power, we are no longer worshiping God. Anytime we try to worship God at the altar of politics and earthly power. We're friends with the world making ourselves enemies of God. When we're singing hymns of praise to the sovereign God of the universe and intermingling with those hymns of praise to political power, When when we are singing the praise of our country as if it were equal to our praise of God, our our devotion to to political leaders as if it was equal to our devotion to God, we are ahoring ourselves and undermining the gospel of grace. So it's ironic. We have conservatives on one side and we have progressives on the other. And What's interesting is is this is a microcosm of, of Christianity, right? In, in, in Christianity, you've you got Tim Tebow kneeling over here, and you've got Colin Kaepernick kneeling over here, and they're both just throwing bombs at each other. I'm with this one. No, I'm with this one. And that little microcosm is a, is a tiny little image of a greater macrocosm of what's happening in our nation and, and as a whole, right, between the blue states and the red states and the Republicans and the Democrats and the progressives and the conservatives. and And, and we're really, really good at focusing on the hypocrisy of others and really, really good at ignoring the hypocrisy of ourselves. Right? Jesus told a parable of a man trying to remove a speck from his brother's eye. And he was like, all right, you're having problems getting the speck out of his eye. You just keep poking it. You know why? Because you've got a log in your own. You can't see the speck because you've got a log sticking out of your head. Ironically, I don't think we're even trying to remove the speck anymore. We're just trying to beat each other up with the logs. We completely ignore our own hypocrisy, being content simply to call it the hypocrisy of others. Right now, while we're running around trying to defeat one another, humiliate one another, post better memes than one another, uh, have better arguments than one another, God is doing what God has always done. calling us back. Calling us back to grace, calling us back to love, calling us back to the victory of love over the love of self, calling us back to the victory of love over the love of power. Take a look at verse 5. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in? in us. God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us. And some of you get a little bit nervous about that, that idea of yearning jealously, that God would be jealous over us. If you've been in a Uh, hyper protective abusive relationship where somebody has tried to control you in the name of love and 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 has basically tried to cut you off from influence of others tried to cut you off honestly from the influence of self they want to control you tell you what to think how to do it that idea of a jealous possessive love can be terrifying and it should be because that's the kind of jealousy described in chapter three where where james calls it a bitter jealousy of selfish ambition that is abusive Right? This is the same word, but it's not bitter jealousy. It is holy jealousy. It is the kind of jealousy that says, I love you so much, I will give everything to see you prosper. It's the jealous love of a healthy parent for their child, it is the jealous love of a lover for the one that they love, it is the jealous love of a friend. For the good friend, they they jealously love this person so much, they will lay down their lives for their good. He jealously desires us. He longs to have us. He longs to love us. He longs to free us. He longs to bless us. His love compels him to pursue us, even though we reject him, even though we chase. Other gods, We look to things that aren't God and ask those things to do for us, what only God can do to be for us, what only God can be. We ask God to kind of hang out and be a friend with benefits while we're pouring our hearts into things that betray God. But God continues to pursue us and God continues to love us because he is compelled by his jealous love for the spirit that he has placed within us. And what does that mean, the Spirit that He has placed within us? There's a little bit of theological debate whether that means the Holy Spirit. As believers in Christ, when you believe, the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence within you. And, and it wouldn't be surprising that God the Father would jealously yearn to have communion with God, the Spirit in you, but I don't think that's what's happening here. There's a reason the ESB uses a lowercase s here. I think it's talking about the human spirit. When God created us in his image, male and female, he created us for a unique intimacy with him. We are unique in all of creation in the sense that we can commune with God. Not simply be the creation of God, but commune with God, have intimacy with God, and he yearns for the intimacy for which he created us. Pause and think about what this means for a minute. I don't know if this aligns with your view of God or not, but it should. It means God is radically devoted to us in love. He's not an angry judge standing out there waiting for us to mess up so he can slap our hand or rebuke us. He he is not the cosmic killjoy sitting out there waiting for us to to want what we can't have so that he can rebuke us. He, he, He is a good father yearning for intimacy with his children. This also means that he feels the distance between us. It means that he feels our slight, our rejection of him, our love of others. He loves us and he is hurt by our rejection. Have you ever been rejected by a friend? Have you ever felt the searing pain of loving someone and having them refuse to love you back? You stand ready to love. But they don't respond. They don't reciprocate. They'll take the benefit of your love, but they won't respond to the love. Do you know that pain? Most of us can't stand it. You know, we'll, we'll post a, a funny little meme on our wall, something about only stick with those people who will stick with you. Time will show who your true friends are, leave the others behind. That's our way of saying it's too painful to stand in this place of loving and not being loved in return so i'm going to shut down my love i'm going to walk away god doesn't have that option he has an infinite love and an infinite capacity for pain i think the closest we might be able to come to understanding what this would be like is for a parent with their child i have a friend who whose daughter for whatever reason was convinced that her family didn't love her and she pursued love in the arms of abusive man after abusive man after abusive man. And, and her parents had to simply watch this take place, to stand ready, to offer invitations, to come in whenever they would. She would allow it, but, but their hearts were breaking. As they watched her running to abuse after abuse, because she couldn't receive what she needed to receive that's exhausting sorrow you guys that that's what we're reading here god jealously yearns for intimacy with us and he feels the pain of our rejection this is this is one of those moments where it's good i'm not god Because if I had the power of God and I felt that much pain, I know what I'd do. Something not good. I would call it good. I'm doing this in your best interest. I'm doing this for, I would somehow intervene. I would, I would take away your autonomy. I would take away your freedom. I, I, would, I, would, I would crush somebody in my anger. I would do something. What does God do? Take a look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. Listen to me, you guys. God never stops moving toward us in love. Inviting us back to be loved. God as the wounded husband never stops inviting us home to repent of our adulteries, our false hopes, our deceptive lovers our need to feel superior to someone He never stops inviting us to be humbled and in humility to be freed by His love You guys, He stands ready to free us from our paths of self-destruction and self-absorption James quotes Proverbs 3.34 to reinforce this, this idea that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It is a a theme that runs throughout scripture. To the prideful, he will not give them what they demand in their pride because it would reinforce their self-destruction. In love, he simply will not give the blessing they demand apart from relationship with him. He will not do it. He resists the proud, those that demand God play life on their terms and give blessings on their demands. He responds like the captain hosts responded before the Battle of Jericho no. No. But to the humble. To the one who comes and just says, I am a mess and I have need. I have no pride because I have nothing to be proud of. I see my mess. And I am broken in my shame. And I feel my guilt. And I know the weakness of my heart. I know how quickly and easily I stray, how easily I am tempted, how easily I, I run to rely on myself. To the humble. He responds with grace. He draws near with love and acceptance and dignity and power. Because we're humble. When we're humble. We're open to be loved. When we're proud, we're not open to be loved. We just want to use love as a lever to try to get from God what we think we really want, which isn't God himself. It's the blessings and power of God. We want life on our terms, on our, in our way. When we come in humility, we are broken. But we are open when we, like Joshua, fall flat on our faces. Joshua fell before the the Lord of God's army and, and, and said to him, what does the Lord say to his servant? That was Joshua's response. What does the Lord say to his servant? I have nothing to define. I have no blessings to demand. I have no direction to give. my allegiance is with you you are the source of my life the giver of my dignity when we come in humility we receive grace we're finally in a position to trust his will because we trust his heart so what are we supposed to do with this right what do we, what we what's the cure to this worldliness Right? here's the thing again Worldliness isn't a problem out there. It's not a conservative problem. It's not a progressive problem. It's a human problem. It is our problem. What are we supposed to do with this? According to verses 6 through 10, we are to pursue repentance. Take a look at verses 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It begins with that phrase, submit yourself to God. That's kind of the, 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 the main, the topic sentence of the paragraph. It is the main idea, the thesis. Everything else kind of explains how we do that. Right? What's the solution? Submit yourself to God. Approach Him as God. Yield to His grace and yield to His Lordship. Give up your mad need for power and influence and give up your mad need for self-actualization and self-glory. Pursue repentance. God is the one who designed life and He knows how it's supposed to work. Submit To the designer, he has a plan to redeem and restore all of life. Stop trying to do his job for him. Stop trying to decide how and when God will manifest his glory in our culture, in our time, in our lives. Submit to the Lord of hosts and let him do his work. Receive the grace of God because it's in receiving the grace that we are changed. He goes on and he says, to do this, you're going to have to resist the devil and draw near to God. Two parallel statements that are really two sides of the same action. To resist the devil means to reject his lies. Right? The world, the flesh, the devil, we talked about this in previous weeks, they're all running in the same current, going in the same direction. The worldliness of our hearts loves the lies of the evil one because they tell us we can be independent from God. We can get the blessings of God without relational obligation to God. We we can establish our own glory, mark our own boundaries, get what we want even in the name of God. We need to resist the devil by rejecting his lies about ourselves, about others, and about God himself. And when we resist the devil, it says he will flee from you. His only power is deception over us. It's his only power over us. Resist the devil by running to the truth. How do we do that? We draw near to God. When we draw near to God, he will draw near to you, right? Walk, skip, run, sprint, crawl. Lay on your face if you can't move and simply cry out, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Maybe the best you can do is say, God, I want to, I don't know how. I want to believe. But the lies are so loud. When you draw near to God, man, he runs to you. Like the prodigal son coming home and the father looking from a distance, setting aside all personal dignity, he sprints to you. Draw near to God and he draws near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Talking about both actions and intent. Don't be content with your sin. Don't be content with your worldly pursuits to find meaning or pleasure or purpose or security outside of the grace of God. Don't be content with your worldliness. Fight. Fight. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Seek to allow God's love to change both your behavior and your heart. Now here's the thing, you guys. In the end, it's God's grace that will set you free. You can't change yourself for God, but God can change you. You you can't make yourself worthy of grace, but God's grace can make you worthy of, of, of Him, right? God will transform you from the inside out, but that doesn't make you passive in the process. You need to go to war with the pride of your heart. You cannot be content content with, with being locked up in fear and in shame. You can't make bedfellows with your lust. What he's saying is stop taking joy, stop being content with your rebellion. Here's the thing. C.S. Lewis once said, nobody knows how bad they truly are until they try really hard to be good. You can't do it. You can't fix it. You can't stop it. You can't cleanse your hands. You can't purify your hearts. But the grace of God can. And here's the thing. You're going to resist the grace of God until you're desperate enough to be humble enough to receive it and part of becoming humble enough to receive the grace of God is fighting for the grace of God. Actually going to war with the impulses of your heart and with the behaviors of your hands. Refusing to submit and crying out in your weakness. James tells us to mourn and weep and sorrow. Mourn and weep and sorrow. You know, there's a healthy sorrow. And there's a healthy mourning. There is sorrow. When we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, there is mourning. When we come to the end of our own strength, there is sorrow. When our shame is exposed, our limitations made known, Our true motives manifest. Sorrow is the appropriate response. Mourn and weep and sorrow because this is worth mourning. When we look at our country, let's not grow self-righteously indignant toward others. That's the worldliness of our heart. Let's not feel superior toward others who sin differently than we do. That is the worldliness of our heart. What is the appropriate response of the church in the face of the crisis of our culture? Mourning and weeping and sorrow at the brokenness of our own hearts, because we swim in the same stream and we've caused the same problem. Don't despise those who sin differently than you who have pride that competes with yours. Mourn and weep and sorrow over the worldliness of your own heart, because in doing so, you will open yourself to the flow of grace. And it's only in opening ourselves to the flow of grace that we will be of any good to ourselves or our families, our communities or our nation. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let me close this in word of prayer. We're going to share communion in a moment. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that, Lord, we stand this morning exposed in our shame. We are a worldly people. We we have more prosperity in this country than most people have known throughout all of human history, and yet we are driven by discontent. We have been given a greater platform for the proclamation of your glory and of your grace than, than any previous people has ever had and yet we use it for self-aggrandizement and self-profit we are more afraid of the loss of our glory than we are jealous for the experience of yours we are fearful we are prideful Lord, I thank you that as you expose our shame, you don't do it to condemn us or to reject us. You do it that we might be humbled, that we might draw near, that we might be loved, and in being loved, we might be changed. What an incredible thing to have such a humble God who loves us like that. Break our hearts with that love. Undo us in your grace. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.